Okay. We should be live. Yep. Okie dokie. We're live. Okay. All right. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, part 15. Boy, we're moving slow, but there's so much good stuff here. You know, I mean, if you think about this, you know the gospel. The gospel is good news, but it's more than just good news. It's a person who is the good news. And when we come to this book, this book is the revelation of the person who is the good news. Most people approach this book terrible and doomsday and all of this, but this is the revelation of the person who is the gospel. So we're in, uh, I want to go back just a little bit. Uh, Revelation 1 9, I, John who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word and for the testimony of Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now last week we looked at the word uh, tribulation. And we went through all of that stuff. And remember, everybody thinks the world is going through the tribulation. We went through every verse in the New Testament. And it was about the church. And that word tribulation there, that's the pressures. And used, the pressures used to press us into the kingdom. Uh, and I know some of the things. I was going over my stuff earlier today. And I thought, you know... With what I have to say today, almost sounds contradictory to everything that I've already said or that I say because Paul writes, we're already in the kingdom. We're translated into the kingdom, which is true. You know, the kingdom, all the prophets were until John. Since then, the kingdom of heaven's been preached, and every man presses into it. And. Maybe as we go through a little bit today, maybe you'll understand uh, a little bit more. And he, and he says, for the word or uh, for the word of God, he was in the Isle of Patmos, for the word of God. That's really through the word of God, through the word. And God had allowed John to be sent there. And the only comparison I can make is Joseph. Uh, you know, here's the favorite son, and he gets thrown in the pit, and he gets sold to the uh, slave traders, and ends up in Potiphar's house, and ends up in jail. I mean, I mean, who allowed that? They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So, I, I say that because I always remember. We are where we are by divine appointment. 
I mean, there's no, there's no happenstance. There's no, the, the Hebrews don't have a word for chance. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Or uh, what's that other word? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the other word. Uh, coincidence. Yeah. Our steps are ordered of the Lord. I mean, you, you know, uh, in, in the scheme of things, I didn't choose my parents. You didn't choose yours. I didn't choose where I was born. I didn't choose when I was born. Who ordered all of that? It didn't just happen. God has ordered the whole thing. And God, our Father, uses all the happenings in our lives for our growth in Him. And remember how those verses were. In this world, He said, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is what Jesus said. Also said, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Uh, tribulation worketh patience. Now, uh, let's go to Malachi. Most people, they quote Malachi. They go to Malachi for tithing. They skip all this other stuff. Listen to what this prophet wrote. Malachi chapter 3. Behold. We've talked about that word behold. You know, here is... Here's a step up, look, and pay attention. Something out of the ordinary here. Behold, I send my messenger. He shall prepare the way before me. So he's saying, I'm going to send my messenger. He's going to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple Even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Now we know that it was talking about the Lord Jesus, and the messenger was John the Baptist. But the same thing is true to us. You know, there's many times we're like John the Baptist bringing uh, the gospel, and we don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ, as Paul said. And the gospel... The gospel comes as the good news to your ears, but what is the gospel doing? It's preparing you to receive Him who shall suddenly come to His temple who you are. But now listen to what he says. But who may abide the day of His coming or His appearing? Who may abide? And who shall stand when He appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. You know, when he appeared to John, which we got to them verses, but you know what happened? John couldn't abide. John fell on his face as a dead man. He shall appear. How's he appear? Like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Now, this is the Lord Jesus coming into his temple, which we are. And he shall set as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. That they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. This is a description of the Lord Jesus. And so he purifies and he's a, a fuller's, whiter than a fuller's soap. But he does all that until there's nothing remaining in that temple but him. I mean, and that's what he does. And you know, that's 
That's, that's the ultimate. The, the thing that Jesus said, I and my Father are one. There was two, yet there was one. And that's what he's talking about until he goes in there and refines and purifies and tribulation and pressure and all of these things until we say, I and the Lord are one. You, you see what I mean? Now, John here back in Revelation, John was made to see a great multitude of saints, which no man could number, from every nation and kindred and people and tongue, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. Each was clothed in a white robe and held palm branches in their hands. Now, we know the white speaks of purity or the righteousness. Palm branches speak of victory. Now, being made pure by the righteousness of Christ also brings victory over self. And asked by one of the elders, they asked John, Who are these clothed in white robes and with palms in their hands? And whence came they? And John answered, Sir, you know. And the elder said to him, These are they which have come out of great tribulation. They've washed their robes, <coughs> well, I'll cough, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Each of these white-robed saints had to experience great tribulation. They're the, they're the same people in Revelation 2 who had been followers of Jezebel and the false prophets. The, uh, and, and that's a, a, a type of the false ministry of the church systems who committed spiritual fornications and ate spiritual food that was defiled by idols. And, and we know an idol is the false images and con, uh, con, uh, conceptions of God. In, in Revelation 2, let me read you these verse. Now he's writing to the church of Thyatira. He's writing to the church now. He's not writing to the world. He's writing to the church. And, you know, we'll get into these uh, deeper when we get over there. In verse 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Now he's talking to the church here. And the Lord Jesus has something against them. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now look what he says. You, he said, you've allowed this. And I know the church sometimes thinks, oh, well, we just got to get along. And he says, here's I got something against you. You've allowed this false teaching into the church. Yeah, I mean, you understand. So, you know, sometimes we think, well, we, you got to contend for the faith. You got to make a stand. I mean, you really do. And this is what he says. You didn't make a stand and you let this woman who calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and eat things sacrificed unto idols. I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent 
of their deeds. Now, who's he talking to here? He's talking to the church. He's not talking to the world. He's not talking to Republicans or Democrats or China or nothing. He's talking to the church. You've allowed false doctrine to come in. You haven't repented of it. So I'm going to allow you to go into great tribulation. The great tribulation wasn't for the world. It was for the Lord's own people. What was the purpose of the great tribulation? To influence and to motivate them to repent. Now, what does repent mean? Repent don't mean to come up to the front of the church and fall on your face and cry. Repent means to change your mind. Change your thinking. Let this mind be in you. Repent is, is metanoia. It's a mind change. Paul talks about in Romans 12, the renewing of your mind. Because they were doing these things wrong. But, and idols, that tells you right there that already they have a false ideal of who God is. Then John sees a great multitude that has come out of great tribulation. A wonderful trans uh, transformation has taken place in these people through the process of great tribulation. They have now washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now they were already God's people, right? They were the church. They were already God's people, already saved from the filth of the flesh. Now they're washed from the defilement of religion and the religious system. And you know what? Same thing has had to happen to us. Same thing. We were born again, saved. But that same religious spirit kind of stuff, it, it gets in there and messes you up. Now they're, now they're washed from the defilement of religion and religious systems. They're redeemed of God who has washed their robes from the defilement of the false doctrines, fleshly methods, carnal programs of the church systems of man. And they are seen coming out of great tribulation, clothed in white robes of Christ's righteousness, waving palm branches of victory and praise to God. They're righteous people. They're joyful people praising God. I think that, uh, I was trying to think where that was at, Revelation. Now we'll get there. Now how many did John see coming out of this great tribulation? A multitude, a great multitude that no man can number. That's a lot. That means we've all... You know, I love it when Paul says, ye who were dead and trespassed. It was the state of every one of us. And when I think about these things, I, I, and, and I love Paul. I mean, you can't even think of the New Testament without Paul, right? He was a mess. This guy made havoc of the church. He had to be brought out. John was a son of thunder. Peter, I, I mean, they all went through the same thing. So I can't. Anybody who sits there and says, well, I was never messed up. I had it all right from the beginning. They're a liar. <laughs> the truth is not in them. This, 
It's the great tribulation because of the great multitude that no man can number. This tribulation has been going on for 2,000 years because John wrote to a real church at Zenthyratara. We can't spiritualize. I mean, it's, spiritually it's true, but it was really for that church that was at Thyatira. Now, John not only sees a multitude, that, a great multitude that no man can number, John also sees a company of 144,000. Now, that's not the same number because I can number 144,000 and over here is a number that can't be numbered. So he's talking about two different groups here. Now remember this book is signs and symbols. We can never forget that. The 144,000 is not a literal number. I know some people say, well, that's exactly to the number of how many Jews that he saved and brought out. That's, you, you can't do that. When you understand how the Hebrews thought or think, like we've said before, when Peter said he prayed three times, or Paul said, I prayed three times for this thorn in my flesh. That doesn't mean he prayed three times to heck with it. It was an over and over and over thing. Three was complete to them. So when they said three times, you know, just like we'll say, oh, man, it, whoo, today felt like it lasted, you know. I felt like I've, went, I've walked a million miles today. You didn't walk a million miles. But we, we say that. To them, they use that number three. So the 144,000 is the number of divine government. Now listen to what he says here. So remember, I've got the number that no man can number, a great multitude, and I've got the 144,000. Now here's, here's an admonition, if you will, to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3.21. Now listen to this. To him that overcometh. So he's telling He's throwing it out there. It's like I'm talking to the people at the church at Laodicea. And I'm saying to you that overcome, I will grant to set with me in my throne. Even as I overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Revelation 12 and 5. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was called up into God and to his throne. Now the Hebrews had a thing of saying things twice too to give a, a double emphasis. The sword of his mouth and a rod of iron, he, they would say the same thing twice in a, in a different setting. So, so remember, I've got the overcomer coming to the throne, the man-child coming to the throne that was set with him in the throne. Revelation 14, 1, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Now, where are they? Mount Zion. To unlock his term, we got to consider the shadow. The shadow was the old covenant. So let's consider the shadow here. Israel, Israel was the whole nation. 
Jerusalem was the capital city of that nation. And while Jerusalem comprised all the government class, the priesthood, the tabernacle, and all that, yet there was only one with his household who dwelt on Mount Zion. He was the king, right? You had the whole nation of Israel. I mean, they could be strung out up in Dan and, and way over here at Issachar and all of this, but only one, they were all Israel, but yet only one lived in the capital city on Mount Zion, and that was the king and his household. Well, I'll just say David, because he was the type and shadow that we're looking at here. It was David. Now, that, that, that Zion was only a shadow of the true and heavenly Mount Zion, which we've come. Paul said, or whoever wrote Hebrews says, ye have come to Mount Zion. Now, this Mount Zion, the Spirit testifies in Psalm 132. I won't go over there, I wrote it down. Psalm 132, verse 13 and 14. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. What? Zion. Now David was king over natural Israel. Christ is king over spiritual Israel. David dwelt on natural Mount Zion. Christ dwells on spiritual Mount Zion. You'll say it that way. And though there's a great multitude... On different levels of understanding. I, I'm, I'm trying to say it that way. They were, remember, they were all Israel. They were on, uh, but there's a great multitude on different levels of understanding of the governmental realm of the kingdom. Notice the overcomer. Where does the overcomer sit? He sits in Christ's throne. The 144,000 reign with the Lamb from Mount Zion. Now, let me show you the contradiction here. Now, Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh, I will grant to set with me in my throne. Revelation 7, verse 15 through 17, Therefore, they are, now this great multitude here that came out of great tribulation. It's, it's right up in the verses uh, with palm branches in their hands. Therefore, are they before the throne? Now, are they in the throne or before the throne? Do you, do you see the difference in location here? They're before the throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Do you see the difference, don't you? I've got them that are before the throne and serve the throne, and him that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. Now, it's granted to him that overcometh to sit with me in my throne. There's a great multitude that's come out. They, they, they're before the throne, and they serve before the throne. And the, but to him that overcomes, I'll grant to sit with me in my throne, and he will dwell among them. Now, do you see the difference here? They shall hunger no more. Who's the they? 
They that dwell up before the throne, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. That, 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 uh, that sun shall light on them, that's the illumination of the outer court. Because what is this whole thing a picture of? For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. Do you, can you see the difference here? I, I think of this and I, I, I look at the... I look at this nation in, in the old covenant of, of Israel. Some lived way far away and some lived close and I kind of think of us you know like a journey you became an Israelite and your your journey in knowledge and understanding and experiences to the throne and you know you you come you, you know as you're you're growing so as we look you know John he was right there in the throne there's many that are way far away just like I've never I've never been to the White House before. It's there, but I would have to make the journey to go to the White House. And, and to get all the way into the Oval Office would be the, the king's court. You know, we have it there, but to him that overcometh. So you see the difference. Now, to me, when he says this thing, for the lamb which is in the midst of the, of the throne shall feed them and lead them into living fountains of water. Now, I have to go back and say, where does the fountain of water at? Oh, Ezekiel told me, it comes right out from underneath the throne, right at, right at the threshold. It come, so, so you know what? It's I see them afar off, but as John was led, remember John, come on. We see those that are afar off, and we feed them, and we lead them to the source, which is Christ. You see what I'm saying? Because we're not saying they're not Israel. Yeah, they're Israel. But we're saying you're way away from the throne. And we want to draw you in just as we've been drawn in. Now, sometimes I can see things better than what I can say. I hope you can make through this gibberish that I'm trying to, trying to spit out here. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And heard behind him a great voice. I want, to, I want to look at this. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Every word, and that's why we're taking our time and going so slow. Every word in this book is significant. I mean, this is the revelation of him who is the gospel. Each word has a spiritual meaning. And is an expression of the language of God. Every word unlocks something of the mysteries of God. When under, or, or every word when understood by the Spirit. You've got to throw that in there. If we could just read it naturally and understand it. And, and this book is by far the most inspirational, instructional book in all of the Scripture. I mean, it's the very revelation of Jesus, who is the gospel, who is the good news. And I'm telling you what, buddy, I mean, you know, I've, I've never been more helped and had more questions answered than in this book. Of course, it's caused a lot of questions. 
I mean, a kingdom view right here, the outworking of God in creation, than in this book. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter. Everybody's got an interest in this book. You know what I mean? Let's talk to a guy today. They're interested in this book. I mean, I could say, go to Malachi. They wouldn't have a clue where Malachi's at. Or go to Ezra. I don't know. Is that New Testament? I got no idea. But everybody in the world has got an interest in this book. Many interpretations. And most, 99.99999, are proven wrong. The reason being is this book cannot be understood with a natural mind. Now, while there's so many different interpretations of this book, you've got three major views, just like pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. You've got the pre-preterist. The preterist, if I'm saying that word right, they see it fulfilled in 70 A.D., right? You've got the historicist, that's, that's a word. They, they view this book as symbolic history of events throughout the church age. From apostles to the end of the church age. And then you have the futurist. They teach the entire book from chapter 4 on is yet for the future. To be fulfilled during the seven year period of great tribulation at the end of the age. You know what? What you see depends on where you see from. Your point of reference. The Pharisees had, had their point of reference was the law of Moses, was their tradition, the, the how many steps they could take on the Sabbath day. You know how their robes looked. That was their reference point. And here the Christ, the Messiah, is standing before them. But they cannot see because of their reference point. I mean, this guy is telling us he's the Son of God. To them, Jesus spoke blasphemy. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Who is this guy? I mean, we know he's a carpenter's son. He's not even 40 years old. And he said, before Abraham was, I was. This book defies the wisdom of man. All scriptures do, especially this one. Some people ask, well, where's the key? Have you ever heard when you're studying scriptures, you got to find the key? So they look at the book of Revelation and they start going through the pages looking for the key, the key that's going to unlock it. Well, I'm going to tell you what, when the Lord gave the book, the book of the Revelation, He sent the key along with the book. The Revelation is of Christ, by Christ. Christ is the author as well as the content of the Revelation. He's the key. You remember Jesus in, uh, in, in Matthew, let me go over there to Matthew. I believe it's Matthew 16. Yeah. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the question saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say they are John the Baptist, some say Elias, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered it and said, now listen to this. Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Which is in heaven, or I could say it this way, in the realm of the Spirit. You know, that's one lesson we're going to have to do that will take us about 10 weeks to do is heaven. We've heard what men say the revelation means. Now it's time to hear what the Spirit says it means. John was in the Spirit, and it really says, in the day of the Lord, when he received this revelation. So the Spirit was his vantage point, right? He was in the Spirit. The Spirit was his perspective. It was his position, his frame of Reference. He was in a realm beyond the natural. Beholding events in a realm beyond the natural. And these things are written in a language that only the spiritual mind can understand. It's the language of spirit. It's not the language of Greek. You can study Greek all you want. If you want to know what this book is about, you need to study the language of the Spirit. You know, on the natural side of it, if, if, if you guys are like me, I always say I'm bilingual. I can speak two languages, English and Hick. Get outside of that and I'm lost. You would take me down to uh, South America, you know, I couldn't understand what they're saying. They speak a different language. Now, people will, now look, I've got, I've got Bibles and Bible dictionaries and Greek and all of these other things. But if you want to understand this book, you're not going to understand it in the Greek. You're only going to understand it in the language of the Spirit, right? So you got to learn the language, that language is spirit. So John was in the spirit. John wasn't in the Greek. Understanding came to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember, they thought it was over. And he opened unto them the scriptures. Before that, their, their natural understanding was unfruitful. They had no clue. They thought it was over. He's crucified. We, they said, we thought. So their natural mind, but he opened to them and their hearts burned within. Now, this, this phrase, in the spirit, is much more profound than it appears in English. Here I am. The Greek expression here means to become or became. Listen, listen to what that says. I was in the spirit. John became... In the spirit. Does that, do you understand that? John became in the spirit. John received an entrance into a realm that was much more uh, deeper, more intense than the world of his outer consciousness. Beyond the material realm. He came into the realm of heaven. Into the realm of spirit. He, he, he came into the realm of the omnipresent dimension of the spirit. That's where, that's where he was. 
when we enter into this new realm, we experience new things happening to us. And these things that happen to us have repercussions and, and, and effects and manifestations in the outer man. I mean, they do. You know, this, this great mighty work that the Lord Jesus has done on the inside, it, it comes out. But John's seen it. These are they. Now, they're over here committing spiritual fornication, Jezebel. And the next thing we, and, and you know that was something on the inside. The next thing we see the outside is their white robes. You're, you know, when somebody's really born again, it, I mean, you can't stop it. The manifestation is going to come in. It's going to come out on the outside. So there's repercussions, manifestations. Physically, John was in Patmos. Spiritually, he was in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It was beyond his, this, this thing was beyond his conversion, okay? It was a new consciousness. It was a complete communion. He was, he was in tune, say it that way. He was in, in touch with the infinite. So that it was with the most perfect ease that God could reveal this to John. You know, in tune. And Paul would say this a lot, according. So the same spirit that wrote the book must also interpret the book. And as members of God's Christ, you have to think about that. We're members of God's Christ. We're the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the revelation of Christ. So our walk is seen in this book, including our full deliverance, our victory over the flesh, victory over sin, victory over the devil, victory over sorrow and death. It's going to be seen in this book. When the revelation, is, uh, when the revelation of Jesus Christ is studied by the natural mind, it kills. When it's studied in the spirit, it brings life. So all teaching of God must come by the Spirit. Give you an example. Seven trumpets. Seven trumpets in Revelation. They are a spiritualization of the plagues that the Lord sent to Egypt. You say, wait a minute, there's seven, there's t- uh, there was ten of them, there's seven of them. That's why you, you got to get this spiritual understanding. These plagues came upon the spirit of Egypt. They come upon the spirit of, of Egypt within each of us to bring the release of our spirit from the dominance of the carnal mind that we may march out of the bondage of flesh and enter into the full realization of our inheritance in the promised land, which is Christ. All, all of these pictures in the old are going to come right. You know, that's why it, it takes a, a long time to get this because, you know, right now there's still a bunch of people who think in the Middle East is the promised land. And then some people think the church is the promised land. Christ it's the promised land. So there's a journey from Egypt into Christ. And, and, and look, the moment the blood of that lamb was shed and put on their doorpost, they were free. I mean, that was it. 
Some of them didn't make it into the promised land. Some of them wandered in the wilderness until they all died. But it was their inheritance. It was there. Many people today won't. They're saved. You know what I mean? But they don't make it into this full experience and knowledge and understanding. And that's what we're talking about here. So those plagues come on us for that very reason. These plagues, which we had looked at, these are they that what come out of great tribulation. You don't think that the plagues that came on Egypt was great tribulation? It was, it was great tribulation on them. That's why he, Jesus repeats the admonition seven times. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. Remember when Jesus was there, the learned elders and the lawyers and the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they missed it every time. So once we're familiar, spiritually familiar with the message of books like Zechariah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, we aren't afraid of terms like blood and locust and, and fire and all the graphic illustrations which God shows us the spiritual dynamics of what He's doing. And in like manner, John by the Spirit gives us graphic depictions of the spiritual dynamics of the process by which the kingdom of God comes to pass in our lives and in the earth. And you know, the reference I always say, you know, He comes in to that temple and even though that temple was there, and the temple was sanctioned by Moses, and God told Moses, build it according to the pattern. Not one stone of that was left standing. And it has to be that way in our life. Just like, you know, when he told, he said, go down and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And, and he come right down to my people. He said, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. So his whole purpose was, was to bring out the Christ. So his whole purpose here again is to what? Bring out the Christ that is in you. So all these things, they happen. The plagues of Egypt were sent upon the kingdom and the people that held God's people, Israel, my son, in bondage. So the plagues in Revelation are therefore related to God's spiritual people. For the message is sent to the church. It's Jesus talking to his body. Right? The plagues in, in Revelation represent those dealings, of, uh, dealings God sends into our lives to break the bondage of Egypt. Which is what? The spirit of the world. The controlling of the flesh. The carnal mind. You know, I've heard people say, you know, they come out of Egypt in one night and it took 40 years to get Egypt out of them. And, and you know, that's every one of us. We, we get all of this junk in us, so it comes and he's getting all of that stuff out of us. God is breaking the power of every kingdom that is within us. I always think of our, our, ourselves, you know, like the nations. I remember I saw this, that revelation one time. We think nations, well, you've got the Japanese and the Chinese. All of those things in us. 
it manifests out here in the outward, but, but every one of us has got these nations in us that stand against the Christ and fight against the Christ and want to keep the Christ in us bound and we want to do it our own way and we want to be lords and set ourselves up in our own temple. God's breaking the power of every kingdom within that rules, usurping the life of the Spirit. And our Father is bringing us out of the Egyptian bondage by a mighty and outstretched arm. And with that bringing out, there's a mighty shakings and earthquakes and, and all of the, and fire. We see all of those things. They take place in our earth as he does it. And you remember he said, I'll bring you out to bring you in. So he's bringing us out in order to bring us into the fullness of our inheritance in Christ. Now, I, I got to go back and say, because this sounds contradictory. Because you're always saying it's done. It is done. When Christ shed its blood, that's it. It's done. But just like in World War II on the islands in Japan, the war was over. The emperor had done signed the surrender. Well, they were still Japanese guys living down here in the cave, still fighting. They was the USS Indianapolis that got sunk after... They had already surrendered. So they didn't get the message. So it's already done. It's already finished. But bringing us into the understanding, the knowledge of it, to the full inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. So it's already done, but not in our experience and understanding. And I could say this, John never saw a thing he was on Patmos, who knows how long, until he was caught up in the Spirit into the heavenlies. Now, uh, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, I just love how this little thing says right here. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Now we're talking about bondage, and now the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Lord is that Spirit. And then he says, But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. So what are we doing? We're beholding the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So what are we doing to be changed? We're beholding the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, just a couple quick verses. But if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost. You know, Jesus called his sheep lost. Right? They said, we're still my sheep. They're just lost. He didn't call them sinners. He called them lost. I love that. Hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, least the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine into them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. There's revelation. To give. Now what, now what happened when that light shined in his heart? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God we're at in the face 
of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What a revelation. You can't learn this by much study. Now, guys, I'm, I love studying. I've got gobs of books and all kinds of stuff. I love studying. But you ain't going to get this by studying. You get this by concentrating on Christ. How, how are we changed? By, we're changed from glory to glory by, by seeing Him, by looking in His face. Our knowledge of God and the things of God depend entirely upon where we look. In, in Colossians, we went through that book. In Colossians uh, 2 and 3. He's talking about Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. And then he says, if you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above in this very realm. Where Christ, Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. In Him and in Him alone are to be found all the blessings and power in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where it is. Now, we can only see and, and know and experience His unveiling that takes place within us. I've got to reiterate, this whole book of Revelation, I'm going to say, is going to be taking place in you. So I want to get it out of the realm of in the future and in the past and everything. Because remember, this book is a blessing to everyone who reads and understands. So if it was past tense, only John and them will get blessed. If it's future, it's only them out there and we're left out. To everyone who reads and understands, because this book is the unveiling of Christ when it pleased God, Paul said, to reveal His Son, whereat in me. So we can only see and we can only know and we can only experience His unveiling within us through the intimacy of fellowship and union with Christ. And it's only in the Spirit and by the Spirit that we can see Him and know Him. The revelation of Jesus Christ is ultimately not a book. It's the experiencing of the very person and life of Jesus Christ within us. Because that's where he's at. Now, let's go, uh, go to uh, Job, the book of Job. The book of Job. <laughs> that's the way he spells it. Job 32, I believe I got it right, Job 32, 8. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. God is inspiring. You know, that's the word in spirit, inspire. God is inspiring His people. That's not just a mental state. It speaks of emotion and passion and quickening and illumination. Truth must appear to us in our spirits as something we see and know and understand beyond our senses and beyond our natural mind and beyond our natural seeing and beyond our natural hearing. The truth appears out of the rolling discourse of God's voice within us. Hearing the, the, the word of the Lord. That's inspiration. It's the in-breathing of God and the understanding and knowledge of 
imparted out of his very spirit within us. The in-breathing of God. You say, what? You can't say that. God breathed into Adam and he became a living soul. He still breathes. And he breathes in us. And that breathing is inspiring us. That's it. You know, in, in Romans, let me go to Romans here real quick. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? And then in Ephesians. Now he says this right here in Ephesians. I always go right here. Ephesians 17 and 18. That the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now think about this. this you remember we're praying here and on our challenge of prayer, Paul, this asking. He's asking the Father. So this is, this is not God withholding something. This is this proper uh, ingredients here. Paul is asking God the Father as He should for what? That He may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in what? The knowledge of Him. Who's Him? The, the Christ. The one we're reading this very book about. And then He says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the riches of His glory, the inheritance of the saint. But that little phrase, the eyes of His understanding. The eyes of your understanding. The eye is the figure of knowledge. Knowledge and understanding, right? I mean, that's what the eye is talking about. The eyes of your understanding reveals that the spiritual sight or the understanding here is, is a, an ability or a function of the mind. Now, without the mind, there can be no understanding, right? A person's understanding corresponds precisely to the condition, to the development and quality of their mind. But you know, Paul in Corinthians, you know what he said? We have the mind of Christ. Now, after men receive the Holy Spirit, the depth of their knowledge and understanding is wholly in proportion to the measure of the indwelling Spirit and the growth and the maturity of the mind of the Spirit within them. It's in proportion. He talks about that in, in uh, uh, in Romans chapter 12, having then, in verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry let us wait on our minister and that teacheth on teaching. It goes on, according to the proportion. Now, does that say, now I know some people will say, well, you got more faith than I got. Well, Jesus said, if you got faith, the grain of mustard seed. Right? And people say, well, you got more spirit. That, that, that's not what we're talking about here. I mean, you're complete in Him. We're talking about an understanding. We, being born again, regenerated, born from above, quickened with His life, awakened to our identity as actual sons of God, the Spirit in us crieth, Abba, Father. Yet, 
We start out as babes in Christ. Nobody comes in as a full grown. You, you didn't come into the world full grown. We come in with the understanding of newborn babes. Even though, even though we're spiritual. Paul says we're spiritual. But we're spiritual babes. Even though we're the offspring of God. Born from His incorruptible seed. Very limited. Right? Very limited. They can't have a deep knowledge or comprehension until they have been filled with the mind of God. Until they have grown into spiritual maturity. The, the spiritual mind being fully developed within them. Now, look what Paul says right here. How do you get that? Uh, this is why those kingdoms and this revelation and those plagues all the way. Because look... Paul says in Philippians, let this mind be in you. The mind is there, and he says, now give it room. You know what we've done with that mind? We want to bind it up. We want to control it. We want to do all of this other stuff. So what happens? All the plagues and all the shakings and everything until this mind can be released and, and until you learn to let this mind be in you. I've often thought about this. You know, there's many terms that describe our relationship to the Lord. I mean, babes in Christ, that's one of them. Sons of God, that's one of them. The bride of Christ, that's one of them. But you know, naturally speaking, even though they're a babe in Christ, they're the body of Christ, they're placed into the body, you can experience what it's like to be the bride of Christ until you become of age, right? He's not a pedophile. He's, he's not over here with, uh, you know, little three-year-olds. I mean, you, you think about it. There has to be maturity before you can get to, to the certain levels of intimacy. Uh, same thing with children of God versus sons of God. There has to be that maturity in growing up. So is everybody a bride in Christ? I say no. They all may be the body of Christ, but they haven't come to that yet. You, you see what I'm talking about. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Now, the mind that was in Jesus, I mean, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. What mind was in Christ Jesus? Right? Because he says there's a mind here that was in Christ Jesus. Now, let that same mind that was in him be in you. What was the mind that was in Christ? The mind of the Father. Because he fully possessed the Father's mind. That's why he could do what he did. He fully possessed the mind of the Father, so much so that Jesus was able to say, I and my Father are one. He didn't say, I got my mind, and you got your mind, and let's talk. He possessed the mind. So he's telling us the same thing. The mind of, that was in Christ Jesus was the mind of the Father. Let that mind be in you. So much so that you can say, I and the Father are one. Wasn't that Jesus' very prayer in John 17? That they may be one even as we are one. What's he talking about? Let this mind be in you so much so that your mind is, 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 is gone. You don't need that old thing anymore. It's his mind. So much so that Jesus say, when I speak, it's not my words, but it's the Father. And you know, as the hands and feet of a healthy body act in harmony with the head, so every member of the body of Christ shall 
act in harmony with the head, even Jesus. Christ may be all and in all because one mind dwells in the body, in us all. Now, let. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish up right here. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Next week, we're going we're gonna to go into the Lord's Day. And I can guarantee you, he wasn't talking about Sunday. And just, just remember this. He came to be in the day of the Lord. So that's what we're going to be looking at next week. The day of the Lord. So I hope I didn't mess you up too much. But anyway, I'll quit with that.